Hear the word of God from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and verses 11 through 16. These readings come from the New Revised Standard Version, and you can find this reading on page 951 in the Pew Bible. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth and building itself up in love. The word of God for the world. Thanks be to God. The book of Ephesians is unique among all of the letters that Paul wrote because it is the only letter he wrote that does not include a particular name, the name of any kind of individual. And it doesn't include a specific issue that that particular local church was facing. In other words, everything that Paul says in the book of Ephesians can be universally applied to every single local church every other community of faith. So he could just as easily be writing to the Christians at Hyde Park United Methodist in Tampa in 2018 as he did to the Christians in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. Now today's passage from Ephesians 4 is a pivotal passage in the entire book of Ephesians because it is here that Paul makes an important pivot. He makes an important turn. Up until now, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, the first three chapters, were all about God's love, and they included bold, sweeping language about everything that God has done for the world and given to us in Jesus Christ. But the second half of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul gets downright personal and practical. Gone are the flourishing languages of all that God has done since the history of the world. And now Paul turns the spotlight on you. Turns his gaze on the individual practices that we each can be working on. So in other words, if you want to learn about God's love, look at the first half of Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. But if you want to learn how God's love can and should make an actual difference in your everyday life, then read Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. 
In fact, it would do you well for the rest of this week to, to turn in your Bible and read Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 and look at it for the ways that it is calling you to live a particular kind of life. And to make that shift from the Act 1 of Ephesians to Act 2, Paul begins this passage with this important reminder to all of us. You have been called. You have been chosen. And there is no greater feeling in the world than for you to know that you've been chosen. You ever been chosen for something very special in your life, something you've been working for and hoping for? My mind immediately goes back to elementary school, standing on the blacktop of, of recess at the playground, where two of my classmates were chosen to be captains, and we begin that iconic and grueling ritual of selecting teens. Those two other boys were chosen because they were the tallest, the lankiest, the most athletic, and then there was the rest of us schmucks on the other side. I wasn't, I wasn't always the last one picked, but it, it, it may come as a shock to you, I was never the first one picked. And maybe you can identify with that moment when one of those captains turns to you and says, I pick you. Or in my case, I guess I pick you. But it doesn't matter because you've been chosen and there's no greater feeling in the world. Or maybe for you it's something else. Maybe if you weren't much of an athlete, maybe you were auditioning for a position in band or chorus or a theater production. And you go up for that audition and you put your heart and your soul into that performance and you know it's not perfect, you know you could have done better, but you did the best you could in that moment and then you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait and then and then that glorious moment when the when the director calls you and says I want you in this group or maybe the employer finally calls and says you've been hired or the adoption agency contacts you and says the mother has selected you or the election results are over and the people have spoken and they want you. There is no greater feeling in the world than to be called or to be chosen. And so this morning, before Paul says anything else about how we can live the life that God wants us to live, Paul wants to remind us that God has chosen you. Greater than any schoolyard pickup basketball game, better than any production better than any employer, the great God of the universe has chosen you. Remember that. Because Paul is about to shift tone in a heartbeat. In the very same breath, he says, all right, now that you remember that you have been chosen, now I want to remind you of something. Because for any of us who've ever been chosen for a sports team or a production or a job, the immediate euphoria of being selected quickly gives way to the dawning reality of the responsibility that now you have been given. 
You now must live up to that calling. You have to live up to that to which you have been chosen. And you know that ahead of you now are long, long hours of practice, of rehearsal, of lines to memorize, of drills to perform, of skills to master, of scales to learn. Because it is one thing to be called, but it is quite another, as Paul says, to live a life worthy of that calling. It's the first thing he says in this passage. I beg you. In other words, he's not just asking. He uses one of the strongest verbs in the entire New Testament Greek. I beg you. I plead with you. I implore you, brothers and sisters, to live a life worthy of your calling. That's the pivot that Paul makes. You have been given a privilege. You have been chosen by God to be a remarkable part of this movement all across the world to bring hope and love and joy to the entire broken world. And now you are called to act like it. The great theologian and writer Frederick Buechner once wrote a story called The Happy Hypocrite. It's the story of a man who was born with an awful facial deformity. So he grew up all alone and lonely in his town. When he reached adulthood, he decided he needed a new chapter in his life, which meant leaving his town and moving to another village to begin a whole new life. On his way from traveling to, from his former town to the next, he looked down and discovered a beautiful mask. And so he tried it on and immediately recognized that that mask made him look handsome. At first, the mask was uncomfortable for him to wear, and he was afraid that people would find out who he really was. But he kept that mask on. In fact, he continued to wear that mask every single day in his new town. He quickly realized that in that new village, he made a lot of friends. He'd never had a friend before, but all of a sudden, he had more than he could count. And he even fell in love. And he even got engaged. And all was going well for this man until one day, a wicked witch showed up from his old hometown, someone who discovered the man's true identity. And so on one fateful day, that wicked witch went up to that man in front of all of his friends and his fiance, and forced him to remove his mask. And what a shock. What a surprise. Not for all the other people, but for the man himself. Because as Beekner tells the story, the moment the man took his mask off, he revealed a handsome face. Because as it turns out, his face had conformed to the mask. For Paul, this is exactly what he means by living a life worthy of your calling. 
It means allowing God to take all of the malformed and, and unpleasant and, and ugly parts of your life and slowly conforming them to the beauty of God's call, the beauty that God has placed upon you to allow your reality to be shaped by God's identity. And if you want a practical list, this passage is for you. If you want to learn how to let your broken self be conformed to the calling that God has placed upon you, then Paul gives you five practical steps. Right there in the middle of the passage that we just heard. Five ways that you can live a life worthy of your calling. I'll go through them quickly, and then I'll go through them individually. One, be humble. Two, be gentle. Three, be patient. Four, bear with one another in love. In other words, help people who are in need. Number five, stay united. Those are your five. That's what Paul gives you. And we can readily acknowledge just how difficult that is. In fact, there's a part of me that would like to go for a show of hands. How many of you are five for five in all of those lists? My hand wouldn't go up. I'm not five for five. I dare to think most of us, if not all of us, have at least one, if not more, of those qualities that we need to work on because this is hard. Especially in a time like today when we are more defined by our differences and more easily provoked into discord and disagreement. This is hard. Holiness is hard. Just like Beekner's story of the happy hypocrite, we're a lot like that wicked witch who would much prefer to go to other people and point out their deficiencies than to look at our own and realize that on many days, we are 0 for 5. Which one's hardest for you? Is it the first one? Is it humility? In other words, is it, is it hard for you to acknowledge that you may not be as superior as you'd like other people to think you are? Maybe it's number two. Maybe it's gentleness. In other words, how hard is it for you to, to temper the temptation to lash back at other people or to get even? Is it number three? Is patience your problem? In a in a quick fix world, is it, is it hard for you to allow the process of growth and maturity in yourself or in your relationships with others to take time? Or would you rather try to wave a magic wand and to get to that destination sooner? Or is it number four? Is it bearing with one another in love? How hard is it for you to love people who are different from you? different in any of a number of ways and bear them up in empathy? Or is it number five? Is it staying united? Is it, as Paul says, preserving the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? In a time when we are much more easily defined by our differences, how hard is it for us to stay together and to remember that the Holy Spirit has called us to share a lot more in common than we are different. That's a hard list. If it were based on that list alone, I doubt any of us would be picked first. But you know what? God has called you. God has chosen you. And God has empowered you. 
in all five of those categories. If it sounds hard, then it should be. Because holiness is hard. But you know what? Here's here's the good news. Right here in this passage. Because Paul not only says that we should live up to this standard. And not only does Paul say we, we can't live up to that standard on our own. Paul says we don't have to do it alone. Because you have been called, you are now part of a community. You don't have to do it alone because we are bound together. John Wesley once famously said, there is no holiness but social holiness. I mean, even John Wesley recognized that holiness is not something you can do by yourself. You need social holiness. You need the social relationships with other people. You needed a community of faith in order for all of us to grow with each other. That's what these last three chapters of Ephesians are all about. You know, I've heard many people say throughout their life, I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not religious. And and what what they mean by that is, you know, I believe in God, but I don't need the church. I believe in Jesus, but I don't need to be part of organized religion. And I have to tell you, I can empathize with that. I, I can understand the pain of where people are coming from. I understand that many people have been burnt in their past, harmed by local churches who have done harm to them in their experience. And I'm under no illusion that this church, Hyde Park, is perfect, or that any church is perfect. Far from it. But I do know this. I do know a lot of people throughout my ministry who have come to realize that even though the church at its worst has caused some problems for them, they have come to realize that the only solution to their problems is the church at its best, community at its healthiest. And that is what we are called to be here at Hyde Park, a community of faith where we try to go five for five, where we all try to be humble and gentle and patient, where we all try to bear with one another in love and where we all try to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's why we do what we do here at Hyde Park seven days a week. It's why we do what we do here on Sundays. When we gather here in this place or worship online, that's why we sing together songs of praise to God. That's why we hear scriptures to remind us of our common faith. That's why we celebrate baptisms that remind us of our common entry point into community. That's why in a few short moments we gather around one table to remind us, as Paul says, that we have one Lord, one God, one faith, one hope, one baptism, one Father of all. We need each other to live a life worthy of our calling. We're not perfect, but we need each other. Shortly after World War I, a British soldier came home from the war front. He was traumatized by all that he had experienced in the drama of war. His name was Alan. He was not very public about his post-traumatic stress disorder. He, 
He chose to hide it to from himself and not disclose it to other people, much like the main character in Frederick Buechner's story. One thing he did have that he cherished very much was his relationship with his son. Alan had a son named Christopher. And Alan and Chris would spend lots of time together, often going on long walks, sometimes into the the dense woods that were near their house. Alan would listen to Christopher share fanciful stories that, that he just imagined in his mind. And as Alan would hear these stories, his son would lift up his spirits with these joyful tales, stories that Chris would tell based on his toys that he had collected over the years. Chris had these these, these stuffed dolls, these, these animals, each and every one of them, Christopher had chosen by name. Alan would listen as, as Christopher would describe the special community that these animals would have with one another. None of them perfect. Each of them had a, a special quality that none of the others had, but they all had shadow sides too, different weaknesses that they learned to work through together as this special community. One of the stuffed animals was an owl who was very wise. Another one was a kangaroo who was very nurturing and tender. Another was a tiger with boundless energy. Another one was a pig who was always very nervous and a donkey who was always down. And in the middle of it all, in the middle of this beautiful, broken community, was a bear. A melancholy bear who was just trying to make it through the day. Alan listened to these stories, and eventually Alan wrote them down. And I can tell by your murmuring, you know who this Alan is. Alan Alexander Milne. A.A. Milne, who wrote one of the greatest children's stories in the history of literature. All based on his son, a son named Christopher Robin. On this weekend, when the new film Christopher Robin debuts, a film that I've been looking forward to seeing all summer, we would do well to remember that each of us has been uniquely called, uniquely chosen to be part of a community, a community far more beautiful than the Hundred Acre Wood, a community in which all of us all of us need each other. Where all of us are far from living the kind of life that we've been called to live. But, but we, would rem- we would do well to remember the words of Winnie the Pooh himself. Where he said, Don't walk behind me. I may not lead. Don't walk ahead of me. I may not follow. Just walk beside me and be my friend. That's what it's all about. 
That's, that's what Paul wanted for the Ephesian church and wants for the Christians at Hyde Park United Methodist. So that each of our different gifts can contribute to the whole because all of us need all of us to be who we are called to be. And so Paul concludes this pivotal passage with these beautiful words. Brothers and sisters, speak the truth with one another in love. May we all grow up into the head who is Jesus Christ and let us build up each other in love. May it be so. May it be so. Let us pray. God, we thank you for choosing us. Thank you for the euphoric exhilaration of being chosen by you and for the privileged responsibility it is to live up to that calling. We confess to you our difficulty in going five for five, how hard it is to be humble, gentle, and patient, how hard it is to love each other across our differences and to stay united with each other. So God, in these days, teach us to depend on each other and to serve one another in love. And grant us, O Lord, that spirit, that unity of the spirit and the bond of peace to which you have called us as a community. And as we prepare for communion, help us, O Lord, to remember that you are the source of our strength in our life and that we indeed can live the way you've called us to live. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and let all God's people say, Amen.